Media commentator Koki Roberts says when Donald Trump calls Hillary Clinton unhinged, he's really speaking in code. That's right. about unhinged and she doesn't look presidential is totally code for we shouldn't elect a woman. Koki, also sometimes known as flaky, snowy, blowy, tooty, and pearly, after the magical crystals that make her mind work so quickly she can interpret Donald Trump's secret messages even as he's speaking, says Trump's coded language is as sinister and subtle as the messages she sometimes receives on her dental fillings from the planet Gnu-Nu-12, where plans for an invasion have been underway ever since Koki blew through that particularly excellent shipment of powder from Bolivia. For instance, when Donald Trump says... Hillary Clinton supported the Iraq war, then abandoned our troops when the war became unpopular, then opposed the surge because she feared Barack Obama would use her vote against her in the 2007 primaries. Koki knows that's really code for women aren't fit to govern because they are blown with tides of popular opinion rather than being able to make decisions on their own for reasons of principle. And when Donald Trump says that as Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton cleared the way for the Russians to buy up 20 percent of America's uranium supply in return for nearly $3 million in donations to the Clinton Foundation and exorbitant speaking fees for Bill, Koki understands that that's really code for females are genetically encoded to search for security and will therefore trade their ideals for a wealthy husband or a large bank account. And when Donald Trump says, when Hillary made approaches to Vladimir Putin with her cutesy push-the-reset-button routine without realizing that Putin was a dictatorial tyrant who would seize every chance he got to thwart American interests and rebuild the lost power of the Soviet Union, Kogi believes that sexist code for women's attraction to strong men is so instinctive that they can be lured even by toxic, overbearing masculinity into forming foolish and self-destructive relationships. And, of course, when Donald Trump says Hillary encouraged the overthrow of Libya's Muammar Gaddafi, then abandoned the region to chaos that only added fuel to the spreading fire of violence in the Middle East, Koki hears coded language meaning women are too flighty and undependable to take a single course and stick with it until they've seen it through. Other coded messages Koki Roberts has received include the woodpecker who tapped out You're Just Not Good Enough, Koki, in Morse code on a telephone pole outside her window and just would not stop, no matter how much Koki cried and begged it to please give her some peace. And, of course, there was the panel discussion on Fox News where Charles Krauthammer pretended to be discussing the ins and outs of American policy in the Balkans, but if you took out every other word and then randomly scrambled the letters of what was left, you ended up with a message reading, your commentary is banal, Koki, and no one respects you. Or maybe that was just the Koki talking. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. <laughs> that was mean. I'm, I, I, now I feel bad about myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, I don't. I don't really. I'm, jo- I'm joking. I don't actually feel. All right, it's mailbag day. Hooray. But, but if you're watching this on Facebook and YouTube, we will cut out after 15 minutes and the mailbag will be on the other side of that. So you'll have to come to the Daily Wire or you can download us on SoundCloud or iTunes and hear the rest. And of course, if you want to watch the show in its entirety, you have to subscribe for a lousy eight bucks a month. You get 30 days for free and then it's a lousy eight bucks a month. And then you can be part of the mailbag next week. You can put your question in the mailbag and we will tell you everything you need to know. And I have seen that people have been sending in their receipts 
for, uh, to pre-order my memoir, The Great Good Thing, A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ. It got a very nice mention in the Christian Booksellers uh, you know, professional magazine today. They called it a heart-wrenching story. I'm not sure how I feel about having my life called a heart-wrenching story, but they did call it a heart-wrenching story. And uh, it was a very nice, uh, very nice mention. So you can pre-order it at Amazon or wherever you like and send me the receipt, and I will send you a sticker with an autograph on it that you can put in the book. All right, so we, it's very rare for me that the news becomes personal, but it did become personal today. There's been a, yet another shakeup in the Donald Trump campaign, and he has put Steve Bannon, the former head of Breitbart, at the top of his campaign. Paul Manafort still retains the name of campaign manager, I think, but Steve Bannon is now running the campaign. Now, you remember that Steve Bannon is the fellow that Ben Shapiro got into a pu public scrap with over the treatment of Michelle Fields. And Ben quit the Breitbart site where he was working for Bannon and called Bannon, publicly called Bannon a bully. Uh, I, I want to say, let me say a couple of things. First of all, every single day, every single day, I get a tweet or an email or a Facebook note telling me that I've been bought off, that somebody has bought me off, that I say nasty things about Trump because the Hillary campaign has bought me off, or I say nasty things about Hillary because the Trump campaign has bought me off. And I keep saying, if I've been bought off, where the hell's the check? Where, you know, come on, you know, where's the payoff? And, and the, the thing that is a joke about this is if I have one salient personality trait is that everybody knows exactly what I think. My wife has been ruining this, saying this ruefully forever. Even my employers, if I don't like something, you know, if I have something to say to them, they hear from me. There's nobody that I say anything uh, to, that I won't say something to his face that I'll say behind his back. I will tell anybody what I think uh, about, about anything. And that is the, the, the joke. The, when you're accused of being bought off by all sides, that's a good sign that you haven't been bought off by anybody and you're just mouthing off. And I'm going to continue to do that. And I've, what I've done with this campaign is I've just tried to say, this is what I think Trump is doing and this is how I think it's going and this is what I think Clinton is doing and this is how I think it's going. I just try to give you my take on it. And that's, that's what I'm being paid for and that's what I hope you're listening for. But this does become a little personal because now we have a guy running this campaign who uh, Shapiro has openly warred with. And here's the thing. My, I've, I've met Bannon several times. We've had several conversations. They've all been entirely cordial, but they've also, they haven't been about politics at all. They've always been about the movie business because Bannon had some kind of ambitions in the movie business. So I've talked to him about that a couple of times and we've always had cordial relationships. But I don't really know the guy. I do know Shapiro. And here's what I will tell you. I, I've been working with Shapiro now for a long time. And this is a guy, and I would, I, I, this is probably something I wouldn't say to his face because I know it would embarrass him. This is a guy of genuine principle and moral courage, first of all. He is also, despite this smart aleck personality <laughs> persona, he is also, as we all know here, a tremendously decent person, though he probably wouldn't want me to tell you that. But that is, I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, harshest shtick or anything, but, that's, but that is also true. When Bannon says that, when, when Shapiro says that Bannon is, as he wrote today, a legitimately sinister figure, that many former employees of Breitbart News are afraid of Steve Bannon, he's a vindictive, nasty figure, infamous for verbally abusing supposed friends and threatening enemies, he goes on to say that he's a guy who takes over things and hollows them out for his own purposes, that he will ride the Trump train to his own success, whether Trump wins or loses. That 
the, the chance of that being true is approximately 100%, okay? When, when Shapiro says that about somebody, the chance of that being true, I can testify to you, is approximately 100%. So now we're in a position where if Trump wins, uh, a guy that uh, despises uh, Shapiro and probably, I, I would guess, if he has any thoughts about me, they're not kindly either, especially after what I just said, you know, is going to ele be elevated to a position of power. He could wind up as chief of staff of the president of the United States. And if uh, he has Shapiro lined up and shot, it's going to harsh my buzz. I mean, that's, that's basically what I want to say. So that that is going to affect the way I see things. I am still going to do make every effort to just tell you what I think every single day about what's going on and just give you a, an honest read from somebody who, as I've said a million times, has already lost this election because there's no chance of an outcome at which in which the government becomes less powerful and personal liberty is extended. There's no chance of that outcome between Hillary and Trump. So I, I have no dog in the fight, essentially. I've already lost. But but I will tell you that if Trump is telling you that Bannon is a sinister guy, that you're going to have to watch out for him, that he's going to bully people, that is – there's a 100 percent chance of that being true. All that said, I have to tell you that Trump has been on a roll, which for Donald Trump means there's been two days where he hasn't backed an SUV over a baby. You know, that's a, that's a role for Donald Trump. But he made a terrific speech I talked about, about foreign policy. And yesterday, at, late at night, really, he made just an – Excellent, excellent speech about the problems that are going on in Milwaukee. He was at, uh, you know, a couple of uh, miles outside of Milwaukee, and he was talking about this. And he pointed out that the, it's Democrat policies that have caused this violence to occur. Here is, let's play the first thing. This is where he talks about the Democrat war on police and what effects it's having. The war on police is a war on all peaceful citizens who want to be able to work and live and send their kids to school in safety. Our job is not to make life more comfortable for the rioter or the robber or the looter or the violent disruptor, of which there are many. Our job is to make life more comfortable for the African-American parent who wants their kids to be able to safely, safely walk the streets and walk to school. Or the senior citizen waiting for a bus. Or the young child walking home from school. For every one violent protester, there are a hundred moms and dads and kids on the same city block who just want to be able to sleep safely. At night, they want safety. So, you know, this is the thing that Republicans never do. They never call out the Democrats on their record on blacks. And, he, and Trump actually says in this speech, I am asking for the black vote, which is something, again, Republicans, I, uh, the thing that I have scored Republicans on is they never go into these neighborhoods and say, you're being screwed by the very policies that seem to be helping you. I mean, the problem is, that the Democrats know they can take this vote for granted, they can take the African-American vote for granted, they don't have to do anything for them, and the things they do do for them to make them look good are destructive. They do the things that you would never do. I mean, if a friend came to you and said, you know, my, my life is uh, a mess, I've had children out of wedlock, I'm taking drugs, I'm committing crimes, I'm in trouble with the police, you would not say to him, that's the fault of your oppressor. You would not say, you would say, get your life in order, pal, because he is your friend. That is what you say to a friend. That is not what the Democrats say to blacks. It's always somebody else's fault. There's always somebody around the corner oppressing them. It's always, we're going to take care of you, we're going to do things for you. If you said that to your friend, you would be being destructive and evil, and that is the way the Democrats have treated the blacks. And, and Trump says that. He asked for the black vote, and then here's the second cut. 
I'm asking for the vote of every African-American citizen struggling in our country today who wants a different and much better future. It's time for our society to address some honest and very, very difficult truths. The Democratic Party has failed and betrayed the African-American community. Democratic crime policies, education policies, and economic policies have produced only more crime, more broken homes, and more poverty. Here's a list of the poorest cities in the country and when they last had a Republican mayor. Detroit, of course, number one, last had a Republican mayor in 1961. Okay, that's, that's more than 50 years ago. Buffalo, New York, hasn't elected a Republican mayor since 1954. Cincinnati, since 1984. Cleveland, since 1989. Miami, Florida, has never had a Republican mayor. St. Louis, Missouri, since 1949. El Paso, Texas, has never had a Republican mayor. Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 1908. There was, a, there was one in there who was like a Republican-Democrat fusion ticket, I remember. Uh, Philadelphia, 52. Newark, New Jersey, 1907. What was, was it Einstein who said that insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result? I mean, when does this community wake up? When does it wake up and say our friends are, are our oppressors? Our friends are destroying us, you know? So Trump goes out and he makes the speech. And like I said, I thought it was a very good, very powerful speech made at a very appropriate time. Milwaukee is still seething. The violence is right under the surface and it's coming out. Uh, you know, I think there was a guy shot uh, yesterday. The New York Times hears this, and you can always tell how, eff how effective a Republican is being when the New York Times goes bats, okay? So this is this is supposed to be a news story. Here's the, the what they used to call the paper of record. Now I call it a former newspaper, which is far more accurate. But they used to call the New York Times the paper of record. So the paper of record, reporting on the speech you just heard a couple of cuts from, okay? Trump, rallying white crowd for police, accuses Democrats of exploiting blacks. They can't even report the story. 40 miles north of the racially charged unrest unfolding in Milwaukee, Donald J. Trump spoke to a nearly all-white crowd here on Tuesday, accusing Hillary Clinton of complicity and violence against police officers and claiming, claiming to reject the bigotry of Democrats who he said were responsible for the plight of many black neighborhoods. It was a dual and seemingly clashing message, says this objective reporter, a dual and seemingly clash, clashing message. What was the clash? I mean, you heard that you basically heard the substance of the speech. Where was the, there a clash? As Mr. Trump, in some of his strongest language yet, told a crowd of 2,000 people that he would restore law and order and that Mrs. Clinton panders to and talks down to communities of color and sees them only as votes. He blamed her for pushing a narrative that he said had helped set off the demonstrations in Milwaukee and other cities after police-involved shooting. But Mr. Trump declined to hold a public event in Milwaukee where 40% of residents are black and instead decided to speak where 95% of residents are white and where many had said they hoped Mr. Trump's rally would be a chance to celebrate the police. So in other words, he's being scored on the, in the news story, not in their commentary, just in the news story, he's being attacked for, for where he did not schedule 
his speech and for speaking to his supporters, for being on the campaign trail and speaking to people who support Donald Trump. We know we know that Republicans don't have a, you know, I, I, what are the, what are the, is there zero percent of black support for Donald Trump at this point in the polls? We know that. So he's speaking to his supporters and yet they're turning this against them. I mean, they can barely keep from, and why? Because if, if Republicans got 10 percent of the black vote, there would be no Democrat Party. That would be the end of the Democrat Party. If that, if that block, that is the block they depend on to put them over the top. And so, and you know, the other thing is, is if, if Trump hadn't made so many gaffes and he didn't play into the press's hatred of him, the press's unfair treatment of him, if he didn't represent so much of what they say he represents, Hillary is falling apart. I mean, Hillary's campaign should, Hillary should just be a pile of dust and ashes at this point. The House Government Oversight and Reform Committee said Tuesday that the FBI had handed over documents and they detailed the perjury allegations against Hillary Clinton, citing the apparent conflict between her 2015 congressional testimony about her email practices and the FBI's conclusions announced in July, according to a letter to the U.S. Attorney. So they sent the, the U.S. Attorney, the Justice Department, a note saying, look, we think she committed perjury. In fact, here's a video they made kind of demonstrating that. And so there's only one server, is that what you're telling me? And it's the one server that the FBI has? The FBI has the server that was used during the tenure of my uh, State Department service. Secretary Clinton used several different servers and administrators of those servers during her four years at the State Department. And she also used numerous mobile devices to send and to read email on that personal domain. As new servers and equipment were employed, older servers were taken out of service, stored, and decommissioned in various ways. I provided the uh, department, which has been providing you, with all of my work-related emails, uh, all that I had. The FBI also discovered several thousand work-related emails that were not among the group of 30,000 emails returned by Secretary Clinton to state in 2014. It's also likely there are other work-related emails that they did not produce to state and that we did not find elsewhere and that are now gone. <laughs> okay, brutal stuff. we got to say goodbye to Facebook and to YouTube. Come to The Daily Wire and hear the rest. All right, we have drawn our saber and we charge on toward the mailbag. You know, there there is the uh, perjury charges or the per attempt to charge her with perjury from House Republicans. There is the fact that this appalling fact that Iran, Iran is letting Putin, the Russians, fly missions against ISIS out of their bases. Iran never does this. They never do it. And this is, you know, remember, we're supposed to now be on better terms with Iran because of the wonderful, wonderful Obama deal with Iran. And now they're making common cause with our enemy. Because remember, Vladimir Putin is never, he's not attacking, when he attacks ISIS, he's not attacking the terrorists. He's supporting Assad. He's supporting another one of our enemies. So now we've got these guys unified against us. It, this is an appalling thing. And of course, uh, there's Aetna pulling out of the uh, Obamacare uh, insurers' roles. So that's like, what, what is that? The third largest health insurer in the country is now pulling out of Obamacare. Obamacare is collapsing. And of course, they're, they're saying, well, that what we need is a single payer because now they've ruined everything. So the government needs to take things over. So the government does. It, it ruins things and then takes them over, argues it should take them over. So again, if Hillary were not running against Trump and Trump hadn't made so many mistakes and Trump weren't such a, an outlier, uh, she, would, she would be in ashes. 
All right, let's go to the mailbag. Uh, from, uh, yeah, woohoo, exactly. From, from Gerald, as an expert on contemporary American media, can you identify graphic novels, video games, movies, or TV shows targeted at a younger audience which carry a cultural message you can support? And of course, there are an absolute lot of them. I mean, uh, Toy Story 3, one of the best movies of the last 20 years. Oh, yeah. One of the, yeah, I mean, just uh, just one of the most brutal takedowns of the nanny state ever. Remember, they go into that nursery with the rainbow over it, and the guy says, well, it's got a rainbow over it. It must be good, right? You know, And it's, of course, a nightmare. The Dark Knight trilogy geared kind of, you know, to older older young people. Uh, very, very conservative stuff. Uh, Call of Duty on uh, and, and Sim City as video games. Uh, Lord of the Rings, of course. Judd Apatow, who conservatives reel at because of his language and his, you know, his sex comedies, very grotesque sex comedies, always comes out in favor of family and against abortion. Uh, he doesn't know he does it whenever he's... The New York Times has accused him, says, are, they, are these conservative films? No, no, they're not. But they are. You know, my problem is not that there aren't conservative films. My problem is that conservatism is always put forward in fantasy films, and whenever they make historical films like uh, JFK or Green Zone or uh, a Fair Game or something like that, they're, then they're always left wing. It's only the left who makes films about contemporary things happening now. American Sniper, which is a great, truly a great film, I mean, another one of the great films of the last 10 years, you know, it's made by Clint Eastwood. The guy is like, you know, he's an icon, but he's in his 80s. He's almost 90 at this point, 86 or something like that. You know, I'd like to see more young people making films of quality, not not just rah-rah, go Jesus, go America films, but but films of quality that support liberty that support liberty and patriotism and faith. So, yeah, I think there's plenty of stuff for young people out there. That's not the problem. I think what we need is uh, more people supporting these kinds of films openly, saying we want to make these films so we're not afraid, so we don't have to walk around Hollywood uh, whispering. All right, from Kyle. Do you think that conservatism among the youth is growing or shrinking? If shrinking, is there anything we can do to reverse that so we have a chance at a decent future? Um, here's the thing. I, I never worry when they tell me what about trends with young people because young people change, okay? The, the hippies and the people who ran Wall Street, that was the same generation. The Wall Street generation and the hippie generation, same generation, same, you know, obviously different people, but not all different people. You know, the famous statement is usually attributed to Churchill that if you're uh, – conservative in youth you have no heart if you're a if you're a liberal as a, as an older person you have no brains you know that that really is true people learn things about life my impression of youth right now is that they are very taken and very seduced by identity politics with the effort to be equal with the effort not to offend with all this stuff you know that a lot of that uh, gender stuff disappears when you start to have kids and when you realize your son plays with trucks and your daughter plays with princesses and you can't really you know do anything about that if, without damaging their personalities, a lot of that, you know, gender stuff goes away. But but what I do think is you young people are naturally libertarian because they are looking for freedom. They're looking for freedom from their parents. They're looking to get out in the world. They want to be left alone. They don't like anybody telling them what to do, although they do allow themselves to be bullied by these social justice warriors. Uh, so so what I think is if we can approach them from that libertarian side, we can make good arguments with them. If we lay off some of the uh, cultural conservatism, and I, I always accept 
abortion in this because abortion, you know, I, I think is a crime. I think it's when you're killing somebody who hasn't got a voice, who hasn't got any power, who can't oppose you, and you're killing them, I think you're doing something wrong. That is not a cultural issue. That is a crime issue. It is a human life issue. But I think, you know, I think the, the conservative movement would benefit from more tolerance toward people of different lifestyles, gay people, all that stuff. I think we can leave those people alone and establish niche cultures of whatever morality we want and see if we can sell them and protect them from the government. All right, from Marley, you said in passing in this week's podcast that no one deserves to die. How do you apply this to something like the death penalty? As a Christian, I never know where to go when debating this topic and would love your perspective on its morality or lack thereof. Well, first of all, what I was saying was that no one deserves to die, but that doesn't mean that sometimes you don't have to kill people. You know, that was actually my point, is that sometimes, obviously, in a war, you have to kill people, but does you know, he deserved to die. I mean, that's just a very hard thing to say in a world full of sinners where, you know, approximately 100% of the people on earth are sinful and, and will die. So um, I, I wrote a book, True Crime, a novel about the death penalty, and here is where I came down. I can't support the death penalty as it stands. I can't support putting a man in prison for 20 years where he waits, and, and the family that he offended, the people, uh, the family of the victim waits, to find out what's going to go on while he is pardoned and released and you know absolved and put back in the death in, on death row, that seems to me cruel and unusual punishment. I could support I could support a system where the death penalty is removed from the ordinary appeals process and you are given a special panel that has say 365 days to exonerate you. That's their only purpose is to find DNA evidence, to find any evidence that will exonerate you, and if they can't do it on the 366th day, you're put to death. Look, I think some crimes are so heinous that they put a fabric, a dent in the social fabric that can only be resolved by the ultimate penalty. And I think that is a moral thing to do. Uh, it, you know, it doesn't make me happy. It's not something I want to see done. But I think that sometimes, it, just like war, it has to be done. War doesn't make me happy, but sometimes it has to be done. All right, a final stuff I like about Frank Capra and talking about how he schools the emotions by using sentiment without becoming sentimental. I mean, I think this is a wonderful, wonderful talent. And I talked about his movie about love, It Happened One Night, his movie about patriotism, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and this is his movie about faith, which is, of course, It's a Wonderful Life. And I'm not going to worry about spoilers because It's a Wonderful Life is on approximately five million times a year. Uh, four million of those times are on Christmas Eve. It's played all the time. It was not when it came out in 1946. It got mixed reviews. It was not one of his most successful films. Uh, you know, it, the FBI uh, attacked it for being communist. They said, uh, you know, it showed because it showed bankers in an evil light, which is not really true. What it showed was that a banker, that, that capitalism needs to be human, human. Jimmy Stewart plays a guy who runs a building and loan company in a small town. And he is, he is a banker, a loaner, a guy who loans people money, but he does it in a human way so that when they come to him and there's a run on the bank, he can say, look, I didn't foreclose on your home, don't run on my bank. And he can say that to him because he's a human being. And I think that that is true of capitalism. You know, you can't have pure capitalism without destroying people. We, it does have to have a human face. So anyway, it's about that. But the, the important thing about this is It's a Wonderful Life, as I have written about, is the exact mirror image of another Christmas story, A Christmas Carol. In A Christmas Carol, a greedy man is shown by spirits what his life has done to people, the damage that his life has done to people. In It's a Wonderful Life, a generous man is shown what the world would be like if he had never lived. So it's almost exactly the mirror image, and it's one of the reasons these are only one of the 
two of the very, very few good Christmas stories that's not actually in uh, the book of Luke. You know, it's like, it's one of, you know, there are very few good Christmas stories. This is one of them. And what is fascinating about it is the fact that both in A Christmas Carol and It's a Wonderful Life, God intervenes, spirit, a spirit intervenes in, peop, in a person's life for good, but he changes nothing. He changes nothing about his life. So let's look. What happens to Jimmy Stewart is all his ambitions. He's an ambitious guy. He wants to get out of the small town. All his ambitions fall apart because he marries. He has children. He has to make money. And because he's a generous guy who always stays behind to take care of people and always puts other people in front of himself. And finally, he gets in trouble with the bank. He's accused of uh, extorting money, of uh, uh, embezzling money. And his life collapses, and he decides that he has to commit suicide. But before he does, he prays. And because he prays, an angel, a kind of clumsy, ridiculous angel who hasn't got any wings, played by the wonderful, wonderful Henry Travers, shows up. So here is the angel talking to uh, Jimmy Stewart right after he saved him from trying to kill himself. Yeah, so you still think killing yourself would make everyone feel happier, right? Oh, I don't know. I guess you're right. I suppose it'd been better if I'd never been born at all. What'd you say? I said I wish I'd never been born. Oh, you mustn't say things like that. You... Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's an idea. What do you think? Yeah, I'll do it. All right. You've got your wish. You've never been bored. You don't have to make all that fuss about it. You know, I I talk a lot here about how uh, Christian movies now are kind of sentimental and gooey, and you watch them, and they're not convincing unless you already believe, and then they're kind of like watching a romantic comedy. They make you feel good about your faith, but they're not convincing. Why is this picture so convincing? Why is it that partly it's the humor, but more importantly, it's that nothing changes in Jimmy Stewart's life. There's no magic. The world remains a tragic place, both in this and in A Christmas Carol. The world remains its tragic, recognizable self. Jimmy Stewart still has lived a life of thwarted ambition. He has still never got to travel. He's never got to do the big things he wants to do. And it's probable he'll never get to do all the things he wants to do. He's still a thwarted guy who put other people in front of himself. The only thing that's changed, both with Ebenezer Scrooge and his character, is the only thing that has changed is that he has seen the face of God and he has turned his face in a different direction and the the world looks entirely different to him. So his same life has become a wonderful life, but it's his same life life. It is exactly the same life he had when he was trying to kill himself, and now it has become a wonderful life. That is a very, very recognizable uh, portrayal of God in people's lives. I can testify to it. I've seen it a million times. We've all seen it, that people have this, that, that God isn't magic. He doesn't do magic tricks. You know, I have seen miracles in my life, and so I do believe that he does miracles, but he doesn't do magic tricks. All he does is he transforms. He transforms people. So it's a very accurate representation. That's the way. That is the way to put forward true values without sinking into sentimentality. We have a day left before the Clavenless weekend begins, so enjoy it. Live life to the full, because after this, a great shroud of darkness falls upon the land. All right, well, we'll be back tomorrow to talk some more. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. Be there.